Hi there, welcome to Tecruta Talks 2. Um, yeah, we're talking with Aaron McKee today. Um, so I'm Richard Gale uh, from Tecruta, and I've known Aaron for now a number of years. Uh, we've worked together, uh, as I was an internal recruiter in two companies you worked at, at Skimlinks and at Quantcast, and yeah, now working with you a little bit at Bliss. But um, yeah, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. Um, definitely keen to see how things go and, and you know, again, how we can talk about the, the hiring market in the UK and challenges you're seeing on your side and, and on our side, etc. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, well, I mean, you, you, the UK isn't the only hiring market that you have experience with, though. You've, uh, you've, you've been in the Valley, you've been in the Bay Area, and uh, yeah, you've been, you've been in Europe as well. So it'd be interesting maybe to chat about the differences between all of those locations as well. Definitely. Um, cool. Certainly, if, I, if you're looking at a job in uh, Luxembourg as a hiring manager, you might want to take pause. Very difficult <laughs> hiring market. Oh, really? I, I, I thought it would be a buzz. Oh, it's a lovely place. It's a lovely place. Very few technical people there. If you, however, want a job in uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, I can introduce you to a few people as a consultant. I've, I've dared to dream, but uh, yeah, no. <laughs> um, but I thought we'd go through your through your profile and, and, and start at the beginning, really. I mean, I'm quite keen to find out how you got into software engineering initially, because you, know, you, you seem to go straight into Intel, which is like really interesting. But how, how did you start off? Uh, as a child with no life and an overabundance of shyness and introversion, um, when my grandparents got me a computer for my, I think it was my sixth birthday, I took to it uh, in a way that only a shy, introverted kid with a computer could take to it. Started teaching myself uh, basic very early on. I was on a TRS-80 and I was building building games effectively in the 4K of, of RAM that it had, copying basically code out of a book. This is the days where if you wanted to run into the program, you were literally reading a book next to you and typing in the lines of code in the book because there's very few other ways of transferring things at least for the home computing world mm. um, ended up getting a pc when we were 10 my family pc um, got really big into the um i probably shouldn't say this the piracy scene for downloading games and um it was really fun to sort of break the copy protection on them and then uh edit all of my characters to uh, my like, like RPG characters so to get my you know 18 stats across the board and so forth. So the first language I learned outside of BASIC was was assembly, so I could figure out how to decompile the save games and, and edit the hexadecimal characters and, and things at the time. Um, at that point, being a geek early on, uh, again the doors were open in a lot of a lot of places. Okay. okay. Self-taught. So, so self-taught, and then I mean, how old were you when you went into Intel? Uh, well, I actually started a little bit before that. It's maybe the less glamorous part of my CV. I think the first job I actually had was uh, working at Bank of America. I was a, a um, an IT support person. Your hard drive crashed. I would crawl under desks to try to fix it, reinstall Windows, mm. editing things like INI files on Windows because inevitably those things got corrupted. Okay. Um, went from there and, and gravitated into uh, the illustrious life of telephone support for semantic products. Okay. Um, again, off of the glory of my being self-taught as, as a geek, they thought I was good enough to answer phone calls from the public uh, and then fix the computer problems. Mm -hmm. After that, then I joined Intel. I want to say I was probably 20, 21 maybe at the time okay. uh, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, mm -hmm. Came in as somebody actually in QA to begin with and uh, started doing side programming on the side. And you know, by demonstrating that competency, I ended up moving into proper software engineering and then into sort of being a, effectively a lead across a number of different groups and doing some, some exciting things there. Yeah. So basically clawing viscerously, uh, viciously 
up the uh, up the food chain there's some of the, <laughs> the less sexy end of the the job spectrum okay and it was it was on from there i know you had a, another couple of jobs as well but then then you joined berkeley yeah this was a uh, you know there was this period uh, kind of the dark ages for for geeks around night 2000 2001 everything sort of went sideways figured after being unemployed a year I could make this unemployment a little bit more productive by by finishing my degree. I'd been taking night courses before that for a while. Okay. Um, so rather than be unemployed for three years, I decided to be a, a student for two of those two of those years. Uh, ended up graduating from Berkeley with degrees in computer science and, and psychology. Hmm. So, which would be a more effective way of spending it than sitting eating ramen noodles in a uh, flat share in San Francisco. Yeah, much better. I mean, Berkeley. I mean, the the, the name is amazing. Um, so was, was computer science your major and psychology your minor, or were they both majors? Uh, both majors. I think, actually, I had been going to school for about 10 years before that. I graduated Berkeley in my, my early 30s. I've been taking sort of courses at night while working at Intel and other jobs. Um, I think I took courses from entrepreneurship, business, anthropology, psychology, um, computer science. I ended up with enough credits to get minors and I think two other degrees. Um, they ended up getting like two, two proper degrees, uh, majors in computer science and, and psychology. Wow, because I, I saw your GPA was like really, really high as well. Uh, some people went to Berkeley and they come back with um, interesting memories of, of all the relationships they've had. I have interesting memories of homework. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I could probably talk to you about for about an hour about psychology and, and the stuff you were doing there. It might not be that listening on a tech podcast. But um, do, you, do, you, do you think that your uh, knowledge of psychology has helped you at all? I suppose hiring people might be an area in which it might be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the careers that I've chosen have been ones where being able to think about how the human mind works, how people make decisions has been hugely influential. Um, some of my career, for example, has been in, in the search space at a company called AskGeeves, Ask.com. Mm. Uh, I was one of the, the main engineers building out the data sets and product around uh, effectively what was called Ask City. This was sort of before Google Maps was really a thing. It was kind of like Google Maps. You'd search for like burritos late nights in the Mission District in San Francisco, and I, I would help provide answers on that on a map. And you start thinking about, you know, you're reconciling all these different data sets, and you ask yourself, like, how would I make this decision? What is a good result for a burrito in the Mission District? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there's a, a few applications there on how people make decisions. Coming into advertising, which is a really interesting field, it's, it's even more so. Uh, relevant, where you think about like how do you put products into an ad? How do you choose uh, people who might be responsive to a particular ad? And understanding how people make decisions, how you know you can use psychological principles like anchoring to to influence some of those decisions. Going into like machine learning and data science helps you understand how to uh, ask the right questions of data to try to get the leading indicators of how decisions ultimately get made. How to put those in context is hugely hugely interesting. I think, again, psychology it means different things at different schools. In some cases, uh, some schools, it's, it's almost kind of like a branch of philosophy or English. It's sort of a very creative role. Um, at Berkeley, it's, it's a hard science in pretty much any typical sense of, of hard social sciences. Almost every course we had, we had to basically think about it from an experimental science perspective. Mm. We had to be guinea pigs in scientific experiments. Every class required you to be a guinea pig at at least two psychological research experiments that the university was running mm. and allowed, forced you to also run your own experiments. So you had very deep coverage of, of statistics, of you know type one, type two type errors, other types of logical fallacies and confounds and so forth. And I think it's actually a far better preparation for my, my journey in data science than anything I studied in computer science. In computer science, 
I would learn about the mechanics of how these things worked, but it was in statistics and psychology that I learned to ask questions like, well, what does this actually mean? Hmm. I think actually having hired data scientists, data analysts, et cetera, that's inevitably where most of them fail when they fail is they pull numbers. They're very good at getting numbers. They don't know what it means. And inevitably, you know, again, you heard this quip, data science is 80% data and 20% science. If you don't know how to massage that 80% of it into something useful and interpret the results of that, it's just garbage. Uh, I think the psychology has been really useful in helping put things into context like that. That's really good. Um, it, it's, it's, I think I've, I've seen it once or twice in my entire career in, um, in, in people's academic background. And uh, I think it's, it's meeting you. I, 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 when I see it, I, I, I gravitate towards it as a result. Um, but, but you joined Ask, Ask.com, after your degree. Um, now, I have a bit of a, um, uh, I, I don't know if this is at all correct, but um, search and search engineering is uh, very, very sought after and very, very prestigious. I mean, when people want to work for Google, Mountain View, it's like, I want to work in the search team. Was, was, was that the case in Ask.com and, and why is search engineering so um, sought after? That's an interesting question. I don't know if I have a perfect answer. I think at the time, um, you know, I had a few opportunities on the plate that I was exploring, whether it was Google or Microsoft, um, a few others, and Ask.com. But Ask.com, even at the time, was was a number two or number three player. It wasn't the sexiest label to work on. Um, but it was a small company. I think at the time it was like 300 people. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've always gravitated toward is, you know, a company that's sort of small enough that I feel I can have an impact. And I, I didn't get that sense at some of the bigger companies. I think the thing that's interesting about search is, you know, again, at the time before sort of data science, machine learning really took off, it's one of the hardest problem domains that existed in sort of the, the 90s and early 2000s. Mm. In terms of the, just the scale of data is, is incalculable versus almost any other domain that you would have. The ability to sort through structured and unstructured data and somehow make sense of that, to sort of find patterns in that, to figure out how do you provide the right set of responses the ability to even just run experiments, like you know, you you know, give a this particular search result set to to you, give a different search result to somebody else, compare how you interact with that. Again, it provides a real forum for being sort of intellectual and creative in how you apply in social science principles, computer science principles, to solve really hard problems at, at really large scale. Mm. Uh, I think from those perspectives, it's it's a super interesting field to be in. Mm. And now, in a lot of the things that made that appealing are now appealing about data science and the applications of data science. Mm. Good, good. I mean, back then as well, I mean, you didn't have like the, 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 the boxed um, uh, distributed computing technologies like Spark or, or even Hadoop back then. So like, were you building like a, a, a distributed system from scratch? Uh, effectively, yeah. Mm. I mean, some of it, the simpler stuff you would just put on, on very heavyweight relational type databases. Mm. But most of it is you were building out sort of custom clusters. Um, and again, the clusters have been around for a while in different forms. I think mm. the way that we do clustering now with things like Hadoop and Spark, et cetera, makes life a lot easier. But there were custom things even back then. And a lot of it fell into sort of supercomputer type technologies, even if you weren't using a supercomputer, which is effectively like process level parallelization. Mm. So you form out a piece of work to a particular worker node and it, re- you know, it returns a result at some point in time. There's a very thin orchestration layer across that. What it wasn't, what you had to do manually is sort of partition your data and say that you do this piece of data, you do that piece of data, and they sort of manually aggregate the results. But definitely you were doing distributed computing. You were taking a work set, you were dividing it up manually, farming it out to different worker nodes, 
you know, they were doing their bit of logic on it and they were aggregating those results a little bit manually. There's some some framework infrastructure to support it, but it was a bit manual as well. well I mean, you, you couldn't just like spin up things with AWS and say, okay, I need to, I need this many machines at this this time. It's uh, way more manual. Put in a, a business request, you need an extra 10 machines, wait six months, wait for your DevOps team or what they used to call like sysadmin team back then to, to deploy it. It was a little bit more manual. Okay, okay, good. But then, you know, you moved on from there and you moved to our wonderful country, the UK. Um, why, why on earth did you move from, from San Francisco to London? Well, you know, you just get so much sun in your life and you think, I've, I've had enough sun for one life. I just need some dreariness for a few years. And the UK was an opportunity. I thought, yeah, that's, that's a bit dreary. <laughs> uh, a little bit more seriously, I think um, most of my background was on the West Coast. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and then moved in my early 20s down to San Francisco. Um, like many places, if you spend a decade there, you fall out of love with it. I think San Francisco is an amazing place to visit. It's a rather crappy place to live in both the literal and figurative senses of that in terms of counting the number of piles of human feces on the, the route to work. Mm. Uh, but I think the bigger thing is, you know, at the time America was a very divided nation. It's only gotten worse. It just felt a little bit insane. When you get on a plane and you go two hours in any direction, and either you're in the ocean or you're still in America and it's still basically the same. Mm. Uh, the UK had this program called the Highly Skilled Migrant program, uh, mm. migrant worker program, um, for which you just need to qualify for some particular point system. They're a pretty easy threshold to cross. And you can come over here on a, a unsponsored visa and, and work remotely. Okay. Uh, it'd be fun to take it up for a few years, and I've been here for uh, for a decade. Good, good. And th this began your, your work in ad tech, which is, uh, if not defined your career from that point, I mean, it's it's where you have had the most success, I would say. So why 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 struck why ad tech and or i suppose we should go back for for our audience like what was struck so struck is uh it's a company that it no longer exists it was sold to a company called quantcast it was one of the first players in the european and uk market to apply big data and machine learning principles to the task of dynamically personalizing and optimizing advertisements on the internet like display advertisements for at the time largely desktops and laptops and whatnot. And it worked in a model like if you went to a client like Topshop and De or Debenhams or uh, you know any sort of like high street retailer online, um, we would chase you around the internet with ads related to what you saw online. Again, you sort of everybody expects it now. At the time, there weren't a lot of people doing that. And it was offering a, a very significant performance improvement over your traditional forms of non-personalized, non-dynamic advertisements. Um, I went there, I mean, no engineer for the most part thinks, I really want to work in advertising. It's once you start describing the sector that actually it starts to become very interesting. And it has a lot of the same allure as, as the search space. The benefits of it outside of the search space is we actually have even more data for the most part than you get in search outside of the likes of Google. And it's a very experimental area. You know, Every single ad that gets shown on the internet to every individual person has a huge data trial behind it, can be thought of as an experiment you can apply so many principles of optimization and experimentation on it, it's really ripe for, for intellectual creativity and, uh, and exploration. And I think one of the parallels is I knew some people that sort of loved machine learning and algorithmic development, and they would go into places like finance or defense or other industries. And you know, if you have a bad day in those sectors, other people are gonna have a bad day with you. People you know, lose their pensions, they lose their mortgages, they end up on a no-fly list, a cruise missile goes off somewhere it absolutely doesn't belong. Uh, if I have a bad day, a few people see the wrong sort of ad. And again, that sort of 
putting that risk into perspective really gives us a, a creative freedom to to try new things, to try to make performance even better. And the nice thing about it is we run an experiment, we get results back in, in seconds or minutes or sometimes days, depending on the volume of the experiment. But there's just instant gratification, this instant feedback loop. Mm. Uh, and that's that's really quite quite compelling. And Struck I uh, joined as basically one of the first engineers there helping out build out that text app, applying what I knew from search space into a domain that previously hadn't really seen innovation in the machine learning big data sort of uh, space. And we grew to be the, the UK leader and then eventually the, the European leader for a while until uh, until eventually we weren't. And that's where we uh, had an exit with a company called Quadcast. Sure. I mean, I, I remember going back to my first days in recruitment when I was an agency recruiter about I don't know, 2011 and I was always thinking I'd love to work with that company called Struck because they're building like this what's what's machine learning they're building a machine learning team like you must have built one of the first big data machine learning teams in in Europe certainly for the size of company that we were I mean again I'm sure there's various big companies I think even at the time Palantir had an office here um, not sure if they were doing machine learning or big data at the time mm. but as a homegrown UK business of, of a manageable scale where a person could join and actually have an impact both in defining the architecture of what we were building and then seeing the result. Um, it was actually very easy for us to hire. And once we started describing what we were doing, it was probably one of the sexiest, most exciting places to work in London, at least for uh, you know for a good part of that journey. And that's that's fun. And I think that's one of the things that I really like also about where I am now at Bliss is I think you know for the UK, the scale of data we're processing, the size of the team, again, people can have a huge impact from myself all the way down to the people on my team on a day-to-day -day basis with uh, a huge amount of, of creative freedom. Versus, you know, like at Google and Facebook, which are doing super exciting things, small fish, big pond, mm. your individual contributions are, are much less. Mm. And um, I, I really loved your, um, and I, I always have loved your explanation on uh, why people should join ad tech because, you know, we do get people pushing back against us and saying, I, I would never work in ad tech, but it was your explanation which showed me, you know, you, you, people don't get hurt with ad tech; they just get shown the wrong ads, and that's you know, it's 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 not that bad. All things considered, yeah, I and mean, I don't want to be too flippant about it. I mean, there's some things that we take more seriously. Like, you know, we give huge, huge amounts of creative freedom to to run experiments, but we don't give huge amount of freedom to to violate user privacy, to do dodgy, unethical things with how we treat data. Um, you know, even back in Struct before GDPR, we were very cautious of, of trying to make sure we clearly communicated to users around what was happening behind the scenes, gave people access to control. Um, so it's not all being cavalier. There is yeah. obviously the ethical component on there as well. But within the scope of experimentation, that level of freedom was super exciting. Good, good, good. I suppose, you know, we could talk about like you know, Quantcast and we could talk about the other companies. I'm actually quite keen to get onto where you are right now at Bliss um, because yeah, I, I'm working with you a little bit and we're doing uh, um, you know, you're doing some really interesting work in geolocation, but who are Bliss? What, what, what do they do? So Bliss is probably the global leader in, in the use of movement data mm -hmm. to help brands understand their users and to reach them. There's a more savvy, polished elevator pitch, but I think that sort of gets to, to the heart of it. Um, what we use is we use data that people have consented to share with us, usually over mobile phone applications, and we'll get movement data as they, they use those apps that they've chosen to, to share the data with us and with the application. And we're able to overlay that with what the, the commercial businesses are in the real world globally, to say that this person goes to McDonald's a couple times a week, this person goes to the gym, um, and be able to build behavioral profiles off of that so that when 
you know, a customer like a you know a fast food restaurant comes to us, they can say, well, tell me about tell me about the people that eat at my restaurant. Tell me how they differ from the people that eat at these other restaurants that are kind of like mine. Tell me about the parts of the city that I don't have a shop in that I should have a shop in because I see people that look like my audience in there. And then help me reach them with effective advertisement, uh, you know, usually in, in mobile applications. Uh, so we are really effective at, at capturing huge amounts of movement data, signals that come from mobile phones that people are, are sharing with us. And then to be able to build analytics off of the back of that, and then also to be able to build ways for customers to be able to reach out to those customers using that data. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, the, the way I, I like to, well, I think, I think you explained this to me, like where Quantcast knows where everybody is on the internet, uh, Bliss have uh, you know, geolocation data on a, a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably a little bit less creepy than that. I mean, we don't track where people are at home and sure. so forth. We don't know uh, if you've been naughty or nice or, or anything like that. Um, our data sets are largely focused on, on retail and public spaces. But, but yeah, I mean, we know a huge swath of, of the world about where people are traveling. We are a global business. We have around 250 people, around 40 people in engineering um, offices, you know, ranging from Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, New York, obviously here in London and, and other places as well. And that makes it really exciting. I mean, to be able to operate in a truly global business, um, again, with a fairly small team where, you, you know, I, I know everybody here by, by first name, mm. mostly also by last name, but at least by first name. And that's, uh, that's a nice experience. Good, good. I mean, in, in terms of the actual technology then, so you're using the geolocation data to make the audience segments far more uh, accurate. I mean, are you also, do you also have like a, a demographic data on, on, on these users, like age, sex, um, and, and using that to enrich the targeting? Uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, we do get a certain amount of socio-demographics as well, and mm. some of our clients will also be able to overlay that with third-party demographic yep. data. Uh, but the typical use case might be, you know, let's say we take a major brand, like one of our investors is, is Unilever, um, a huge, huge multinational global brand, and they might want to sell shampoo. Uh, so we might have an ad that targets people that live near some of the, the Walmarts in the U.S., for example, that might be selling that type of shampoo. And we were able to put ads in showing, showing that shampoo. And, and then we were able to measure that, that more shampoo was sold at Walmarts. Um, the shampoo example is a fairly prosaic one. I think there's also examples of other clients like McDonald's, for example, that might run campaigns to understand, you know, this person eats Egg McMuffins in the morning. Maybe we should show them an Egg McMuffin ad uh, on a Friday or something to see if we can get them to go and shop when they're walking nearby a McDonald's. You found my segment. Uh, McDonald's is definitely targeting me with that because I eat far too many Egg McMuffins. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think sometimes we also chase people that go to uh, fast food restaurants with uh, gym ads as well. So maybe we can have a positive impact on your lifestyle as well. <laughs> that's, that, that's a good way to look at it. Um, well, you, you've got so much experience in the ad tech space uh, from multiple companies where you've been CTO and a senior engineering and product leader. What, where, where do you think the ad tech uh, industry is, is, is going? Uh, what, what do you think the main challenges are and what, what does the ad tech, company, uh, ad tech industry have to do, especially post-GDPR? I think it's been interesting. I think if I were to be a little bit frank, my experience with the ad tech industry is there's been a lot of players that aren't strictly ethical in the traditional sense. Um, what they do as a business in terms of whether they, uh, you know, how they use user data, how they... Um, sort of run their business, it's not always really been, I think, above board. Um, I've had the benefit of, of working, and, and insofar as I've been a leader, having influence, that the businesses I work on, we are above board. We do take the ethical stance. We do try to respect privacy and follow the regulations and, and do the right thing, generally. 
I think what's been good about things like GDPR and, and things like the um, California Consumer Privacy Act that's coming into play later this year, early next year, is that a lot of these companies that are, are a little bit more on the dodgy side, they're starting to shake out of the industry. Um, I think the move in the industry as well to greater transparency, to greater auditing, to customers having more access to the black box that a lot of these companies have historically operated in, again, that's causing a lot of shakeout of, of the bad players. And I think that's been a remarkably good force. I think there have been some challenging forces as well. There's been huge consolidation in budgets and activity around the likes of Google and Facebook. Um, that's a mixed blessing in various ways. I think sometimes if you put all your eggs in a couple of different baskets, uh, a couple of different baskets like that, they become a very dominant force. And again, everybody reads the news, right? You've seen some of the things that have come out around how Facebook has used the data, not just to understand their users, but potentially to manipulate political discourse. Um, some people have concerns like that, and those some people might be things like the U.S. Congress and the Houses of Parliament and others. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that particular layer vein plays out. I think you will see increasing regulation, especially on those dominant players like Google and Facebook, where they will be much more under a microscope, much more uh, susceptible to, to government insight and regulation. I think it'll generally be a good force for the industry. Are, are you are you worried about uh, extra regulation or or uh, regulation that uh, isn't 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 bounded? Uh, if say the um, uh, there's more scandals like what happened to Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Ah, I mean it's hard to complain, right? I mean, mm. on one hand, I I am also myself a, a geek and a, a privacy advocate. You mm. know, I do believe that the government has a strong role to to regulate, you know, good behavior. Mm. The challenge comes into play when the people regulating it don't fully understand the technology or necessarily the commercial impact. Uh, I think with GDPR, it's safe to say in some cases, um, the scope of impact has probably exceeded what they might have expected. The commercial impact has potentially exceeded what they might have expected. I think there's always a danger that, again, try in so far, in, insofar as you're trying to find a balance between um, user privacy and commercial commercial viability, if that pendulum balances in such a way not informed on, on sort of the science of the technology and so forth, uh, it's not a great place to be. I know it's a little bit of word vomit. I guess the closest analog I come up with, and this is also a little bit politically sensitive, we're talking right now about this Irish backstop agreement. I think one of the things on the plate is let's come up with some technical solution to mitigate the, the Irish border. Right now, there's no technology on there, but that doesn't stop the politicians from saying, well, let's just have technology, some magical technology somewhere to put you know, customs control on an open border. Mm. But maybe it doesn't exist. And <laughs> sometimes I think you see, again, philosophies like that, approaches like that, expanding beyond just things like the Irish backstop to all forms of regulation. I think having them be well aware of the commercial uses of data and, and you know, the, what's practical and possible, I think would be only a good thing. So back to the question, am I afraid of additional regulation? Um, no, I think we've always taken a very, uh, it, this has been a competitive advantage, we've taken a very encompassing approach to this. Mm. Um, quite a few of our competitors have gone out of business or left Europe because they weren't able to be as compliant as we are. Um, it is certainly a danger if people are creating regulations that are devoid of the understanding of the impact of that. Mm. Uh, I think, though, the bigger risk comes from effectively the, the behemoths that control huge platforms. You know, I think one of the, the examples of that might be, you know, Apple with uh, Safari, they have this thing called ITP, um, Intelligent Tracking Protection. Effectively, it's now blocking first party cookies if they feel the first party cookie has any sort of tracking semantics associated with that. 
Mm. A little bit jargony for a second, but one of the things they're doing is a first party cookie. Let's say you log in to Topshop and you want to go buy an outfit or Top Man or whatever. That login cookie is only going to be persisted, or the cookie for Topshop will be persisted for seven days. That means all of us are going to be forced to re-log into sites all the time because they're really trying to stamp out sort of any use of first-party cookies for ad tech players or, or analytic players and so forth. And on the surface, to a typical user, that sounds really good and really promising. It, you know, it, the pendulum has swung quite a bit towards protection of user privacy and so forth. You know, you might be able to put that into a slightly different context. Apple does not have a major business or revenue line associated with advertising. Their direct competitor does. So if they single-handedly squash the entire advertising ecosystem on iPhones, which are a dominant you know, part of the ad ecosystem, that doesn't really hurt them. It potentially helps them, and it really hurts the competition. <laughs> so there's sometimes a cynical approach to how these companies roll out technologies and how they advocate for regulations that's not always putting the user honestly front and center in, in their thinking. Mm. I, I know I certainly wouldn't want to uh, log back into allow first party cookies every time, single time I went onto the internet. Um, good, good, good. Um, I wanted to get onto data science a little bit in, in a bit extra detail because you, you've been working with uh, great data scientists for years now, uh, longer than most people in London. And uh, I, I don't know about you. Have you seen um, Have you seen any changes in the data science industry, say, over the last like ten years? I mean, there's obviously you know, new technologies. There's new machine learning methods that are being used. Um, what What are the biggest changes that you've seen since you first started looking for these folks at Struck? Ah. Uh. It's a remarkably sexy field now, um, and it used to be that there are very few people out there, and uh, they were cut from a certain cloth. Um, you know, very uh, gifted people, maybe on on a particular less social end of the spectrum. Sometimes they were um, very special, and I don't mean that in any sort of uh, uh, nuanced way. But they were, you know, unique engineers tend to be unique, and they were a little bit more on the unique end of that spectrum. Um, which was brilliant because you saw a certain philosophy, personality and philosophy coming through that. Again, I don't want to overgeneralize to this, um, but I think it, the demographics of that, uh, both in terms of, of, of gender as well as personality, I think have shifted. It's now much more mainstream. You see people from, from all walks of life, all personality types coming into data science. It's a mainstream thing that's taught in, in university and, and effectively everybody wants to, to play with data science. I, you know, I interviewed the other day, somebody who's been doing like Angular and JavaScript, and says, you know, really what I want to do next in my job is I want to play more with data science. Yeah. Brilliant. I love the ambition. Um, so it's something that everybody wants. It's, it's sort of like my own transition, you know, being a geek in the 80s. I mean, I used to have to run home from school because everybody would used to try to beat me up because I was, I was the nerd. Now everybody can be a geek. And, you know, you look at somebody, you can never make a value judgment over, oh, are they a geek or are they, you know, are they a banker or are they whatever, you know. You can't spot what somebody is by looking at them. And the same is becoming even more true on data science, which is absolutely amazing that we're seeing a wider uh, tranche of people in that field. I think one of the other shifts though we are starting to see more recently is actually a lot of data science teams can now skew a little bit more towards or data engineers or, or what I go sort of kind of call data science engineers, which is you don't necessarily need a PhD in applied maths to, to build models anymore. A lot of the models that most businesses will use will have an aspect of novelty to them, but probably a bigger aspect of applying good practices and patterns mm. and well-known libraries to slightly custom domains. You know, almost every business that does any form of classification probably has a logistic regression model somewhere somewhere in their ecosystem. I mean, you don't need a PhD to necessarily understand how to deploy mm. a, a logistic regression model. 
or a neural network or deep learning models or so forth. Mm -hmm. um, to understand it, you might need that, especially to optimize that for very special uh, use cases or to get the last 1% of performance out of it, you might still need that training. But there's a huge amount of off-the-shelf kit, whether it's you know the, the tooling provided by Google or Amazon or things in the Python ecosystem, where a reasonably clever computer scientist who probably has had some exposure to math and potentially some exposure in, in undergraduate to, to algorithms and artificial intelligence can effectively apply these things and, and get what I kind of call the Pareto impact. They get the 80% benefit of machine learning with the 20% of the effort. So I think what you're finding is when a company needs to apply their, their first models or even their second models, they don't need to hire a bunch of PhD mathematicians. They can hire or find some really good, savvy, clever engineers with a propensity for maths and point them at, at this direction, there's a huge amount of supporting material on the internet, and uh, they can be dangerous. They can be productive, at least over, over the short term, depending upon the problem domain they're in. And I think that's really empowering. That means everybody can be a data scientist. Every company can apply data science principles through some parts of their business. Okay. Good, good. I, one thing that I'm certainly seeing in the last few years is uh, a split between, I, I don't know if this is right, but what I would call classic machine learning, where you're looking at like stuff like supervised and unsupervised learning methods, classification clustering, and now we're moving into the sexy black boxes of deep learning. Um, I mean, it's it, you know, every company is looking for something different, but are, are, you, are you using deep learning at Bliss? What, what, what's your opinion about deep learning as such? Because I know it can be maybe a little contentious even. Uh, I mean, I've been in a few places where we've played with it, certainly. Uh, you know, Skimlinks, where you and I worked together, Richard. Um, you know, we had a couple of people there that were uh, playing with TensorFlow and, and you know, even you know, talking on the TensorFlow circuit. Some of them have gone to work at, at DeepMind, probably working in some way, shape, or form on, on TensorFlow. Um, so far, and again, this might be biased from my own particular industry, I've not seen this used in production. Okay. Um, not in the companies I've been at. It's not to say that there aren't use cases for that, but in some cases it might be a more complicated use case or a more complicated implementation than say just doing like a logistic regression modeling or different types of optimization algorithm. Um, it really depends on the problem domain. And you know, if I were doing image classification, probably my first reaction would be let's try out the Amazon or Google Vision APIs out of the box. Mm. But if I really needed to do that on my own, then potentially I'd go down like a TensorFlow or, or deep learning sort of approach. Other than that, though, I have not seen it applied in practice in, in the companies mm. I've been mm. Yeah, in, in, I mean, in some of the companies, including AdTech and, and in FinTech, um, it's been the <clears throat> the opinion of the senior technology leaders not to throw a black box at something if a logistic regression will do. Uh, it's uh, computationally extremely expensive and it's very opaque. Yeah, I mean, they, they say the same thing about logistic regression, but at least you can get, you know, weights out and the individual features out by, by you know, re-encoding it and so forth. Mm -hmm. I, th there are some environments in, in which I've worked where they're doing really quite hardcore research. Babylon Health would be an example where they're doing you know, cool stuff with like every CNN and RNN known to man and like Bayesian inference um, and like probabilistic programming where it gets extremely to the bleeding edge of where the, where the, um, where the research is going. But you know, for in, in ad tech certainly and in fintech, I've, I've, I've seen much more of what I would call the classic machine learning. Yeah, and again, that might change. You know, if we had to do, I mean, there's a range of things for which it could be applied. Um, I think my general guidance to other managers when I've sort of mentored and so forth is don't always jump to the, the sexiest, newest thing. You know, boring tech is, is actually pretty interesting. Um, especially if you're operating at scale, like you know, as a business, uh, 
just being in a smaller business has its own set of challenges. What is your product market fit? How do you make your customers happy? How do you grow your team? How do you maintain the code you have? How do you evolve from sort of early technical adopters and sort of prototype code to something that's more product and production ready? As a business, as a leader, you sort of want to minimize the pain that you face. And again, there are different ways of doing that. You know, if you have a really significant and ambitious product challenges, like you need to process terabytes of data with you know single-digit millisecond latency response times and so forth, that's a really hard problem. Don't make your problem even harder by throwing in really hard technology unless you need to. And again, if you need to, and if it's competitive advantage, you should do so. But again, try to figure out how to minimize the pain across across your ecosystem. And again, if you know applying deep learning principles will give you a you know strategic advantage, then do so. If it won't, don't just play for the the sake of playing. If you have other more interesting problems to solve in your business, uh, fanboy coding springs to mind. But fan, <laughs> fanboy fanboy machine learning. Yeah. I remember in the when we were at Skimlinks together, you uh, you you had a really great uh, engineering culture document in which you expanded on, on on this kind of pragmatic approach as well. Yeah, I think again a lot of my philosophy comes back to sort of things that are now valley cultural principles, and the heart of it I think would come down to broadly what would be called lean development as espoused by things like the Toyota way and the lean startup and so forth, and it really focuses on. You know, the concepts of one, building an MVP, like don't build more than what you need to get feedback on the product that you're building, but try to build things that are small but robust within the context of what you need to build them in. And, and get, you know, this build, measure, learn cycle in where you get feedback into the product and you evolve it pretty quickly. And part of that build, measure, learn cycle and keeping that small is really making sure that the engineers understand as much of the business, as much of the customer pain, as much of the commercial pain in the industry as humanly possible. The more sort of translation layers that something has to go to between the customer and the person building the solution for that, the less likely you are to succeed. Mm. Um, so at a business like Struck, for example, we didn't even have product managers for most of our history. We connected the engineers and myself directly to the internal and external teams running our business mm. and our customers. And we did pretty well in that regard. And you know, I see across other businesses, the more informed you can get your engineers, the more you can get them to feel about pain the more you can measure them not on sort of, I want you, Mr. or Mrs. Engineer, to do task X, to more, I want you to solve problem Y. Mm. Yeah, I think it creates a great culture in terms of motivation and morale. And then they understand why they're doing something, why it matters. There's nothing worse as an engineer to receive a JIRA ticket from somewhere on high and to implement this in a vacuum. I think, was it Brazil, they had like these vacuum tubes where sort of dictates would come through the vacuum tubes and, and whatnot. It, no, that doesn't make any sense, right? We want to build an engineering culture where engineers feel connected to their work, connected to the business and the customer, understand why. And we discuss and debate how we solve problems philosophically rather than as a manager team saying, go do this. Mm. And I think that's that's really powerful. And I think that was part of what we did at Skimlinks. It's part of what I tried to do in, in some of the other companies that I've been at is really ennobling and empowering and giving autonomy to the engineers because we trust them, because they understand the business, because they have a huge amount of freedom to solve really bold and ambitious problems. That that segues quite nicely into um, how, how how you hire great engineers because what you're describing you know people who can solve hard problems you know in a in a perhaps undefined problem space that that goes back to what I've always considered a great generalist engineer where you're looking for you know, polyglots people with broad technical experience who can solve problems without you know telling you, you know, this is exactly how you build it and this is exactly the technology you use so I mean do do you think there's a good overlap there? 
Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I remember reading this Valve employee manual where they say they hire T-shaped engineers. Mm. Uh, I really like that. And I think sometimes they say, well, maybe it's E-shaped engineers. You hire, as you said, polyglots. You hire generalists, people who have a good foundation. You know, generally, I will hire people with like a software engineering or computer science background, not always. Um, and then broad experience, and then potentially some some area of depth where you know they really are you know, the rock star, the unicorn, or the best person in the world for that particular domain. Mm. And again, we're, what we're optimizing for is not I need you to solve this problem that will continue to be this problem for the next ten years. We're not looking for you need to have nine years of experience with Java and Spring and mm. you know Hibernate and, and crap like that. We're hiring people who have some foundation because the problems we face next year will be very different than the problems we face this year. And it, wouldn't it suck if we had to fire everybody that we have next year because they have the wrong skills mm. and we've hired for people who are you know, just solving a particular problem? We don't want engineers to think that every problem is a, ha is a nail and all they have is a hammer. So you hire generalists, people who are good at learning, who have the right foundations to apply sort of a holistic view of, of solving that problem. Yeah. And I think that also makes it easier to keep them and, and motivate them because mm. when they start getting bored and good engineers will get bored sooner or later, you can move them to another team. You can move them to a different problem, and you have faith and, and confidence that they will ramp up on that and, and then be intellectually stimulated at least for another six months, hopefully. Well, you, you've just rocked my world. I thought every single problem in the world could be solved with Scala, and you've just rocked my world there. Uh, <laughs> you've talked to some of the interview engineers we've interviewed, haven't you? <laughs> well, I've, I've spoken to a few of them, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, this this is an issue that that um, you know at, at, at one of my former company ships that we were hiring great generalists, but we did happen to use Scala very heavily. I think Scala was one of the languages in which I saw a great deal of evangelism uh, coming in. And, you know, people were very excited about Scala, that they were great to hire, but if they thought that Scala could solve every single problem rather than it being a tool in a toolkit, that might have been a bit of a yellow flag. Yeah, and I, um, I mean, what I often say is I tend to be very turned off by religion in engineers. And I obviously don't mean that in sort of the, 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 the ethical sort of way. Um, I think of an engineer much like an architect. Let's mm. say, you know, Mr. Gale, you win a million quid and you want to build a house. Mm. That would have been a nice house. It, these days, maybe that's not such a nice house, but it's still a house. And you hire an architect and you, you know, you have a plot of land and let's say it's, it's you know, somewhere in the West Country, rolling hills or, or whatnot, and you want to build a lovely house on, on a farmland. And this architect comes and says, I've got the perfect house for you. I'm going to use this hammer. I'm going to draft it with this number two pencil. It's a great number two pencil. It's absolutely amazing. Look at the cardstock I'm using for the blueprint paper. It's beautiful. And here are the contractors I'm going to bring in to, to help build it. And they only use um, heat-treated lumber and, and so forth. And at no point has he talked about how the light's going to flow through your living room in the morning or how you're going to see the fog out your back porch rolling over, over the downs. I mean, what you want to see when you're building a house is how this impacts your view of the world, how this gives you an emotional connection to something. That you're building something that has some sort of intrinsic meaning that is more than the sum of its parts. Mm. But I find an engineer and they talk about how much they love Erlang, that's brilliant. But if they don't talk about how they make customers happy, how they solve really hard problems and that's intellectually stimulating, how they're accomplishing something that has value and purpose, again, I, I think I'd agree with you, that tends to be a yellow flag. I mean, we're not engineers because we love playing with tools. I mean, to some extent that's true, I love playing with tools. But, you know, I grew up playing with Legos, and it wasn't that I, I loved little plastic bricks. I loved building things. Um, at heart, we hire engineers who love to build things. <laughs> I, I personally like Meccano better than Lego, but I know that makes me part of the minority. 
Um, so, so, so these these great generalist engineers. What's what's the best way to interview them? Because you know everyone out there has their own interview philosophy and their own interview process. Um, you know there are trade offs in in certain of them, but like. One thing that you always said to me that's really stuck with me, and this is maybe just one part of your philosophy, um, where you didn't want any question asked that couldn't result in you know in a negative. Like there were no useless questions during the interview. That's something that's stuck with me my entire career. Um, uh, if you could talk about that, that'd be that'd be great. Yeah, I mean it's more of a guiding principle than a, a hard rule per se. Because yeah. sometimes it's hard to know. You know, I've read, read a million job descriptions, and you've probably read 10 million job descriptions, and they'll inevitably have things on here like requirements, must know Agile, must know Git, must know Git flow. I mean, really? If somebody's only ever used Subversion in their life, are you really going to say no? Even if they've worked at Google and they've been brilliant in every single capacity, does this add any signal, or is this just noise? Yeah. And, and here's the other example of that. So, you know, let's say you sit down, and you talk to a perfectly good person, and maybe they spent all of their life in hold for whatever reason. And I, I've been to whole one, so I don't know anything about it, so maybe just treat this as a, as a prototype. Um, they're a brilliant person, but you know, maybe whole is not a technical hub, and they've only worked at boring companies. And you sit down, and in the first 30 minutes, you do what most companies and most people do. Tell me about your past projects. Mm. Tell me about your past companies. And you're sitting here thinking, God, this person is boring. They've never solved really hard problems. This is, ah, get this person out of here. Well, put it in the context of what were the opportunities this person had. Mm. And you know, it doesn't matter whether they worked on a super interesting project in the past or not. I mean, it's, it's an interesting signal if they have. But what you actually care more about is can they solve the problems that you have now, today, and in the future for you, not what problems they've done in the past. Mm. But usually my guidance to the people that we, you know, that we interview here and so forth is actually we don't, you know, we look at the CV just to get broadly the set of keywords that we can dig on. If somebody doesn't have Hadoop on their CV, maybe we don't even need to bother talking about Hadoop. If they do, maybe that's fair game. Um, that gives us sort of the vocabulary that we can that we can approach the candidate with. But certainly nobody should talk about, tell me about this last project. Tell me what you did. Tell me the problems you faced. Because maybe they didn't have the greatest opportunity. And here's the other half of this. You don't know what an individual's contribution was to that project. You know, in my university career across a range of schools that I went to, we always had these group projects, and I hated them. Um, mainly because inevitably there was you know, some group of people that were really busting their ass invested in the project and there was usually one person who did nothing other than show up to the meetings maybe and then they got their name on the project but at the end of it when they do the project wrap up conversation they can talk about it just as well as everybody else they look like they have the reflected glory of other people's work so again I don't think it adds a lot of signal so what I usually focus on are, are for the most part, real-world questions relating to problems that we've already solved or things that really interest us about problems we expect to solve. And we try to get people to work through those. Um, wherever possible, the focus on our hiring is on real-world types of problems that the person will face. We try not to throw too many brain teasers at people. You know, how many fire hydrants are in Manhattan? Again, maybe it's interesting, but I don't think it correlates with much. Tell me how to implement an LRU cache. What are the data structures imposed on that? What is the computational complexity of that? Can you implement this in a lock-free way? How would you, you know, make this sort of thread safe and, and, and re-enter it and so forth? Mm -hmm. We do that. I personally implemented LRU Cache in three different companies for three different reasons. Tell us how you would, you know, solve this particular big data problem or implement this sort of machine learning model. And again, you get people to start walking through that, those sort of problems, you get to see how they think, the questions they ask, and that's really an interesting part of, of, sort of candidate interviewing is what questions they ask, what assumptions do they make, 
And you also get to see how their eyes light up around the, the interest of, of the problem domain. If they're super bored, they don't ask any follow-up questions, they don't seem to be intellectually engaged, well, that's, that's a yellow flag, I guess, right there. Hmm. We'll give them hard problems, something that you can speak to intelligently, um, and, and then see how they do. Hmm. I, I remember your slight aversion to the highly abstract kind of systems design questions that, 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 that could be asked and uh, your your predilection to, to, to make it more real world. And I think that uh, that, that, that served us well to, at Skimlinks and at Concast. Yeah, I think so. I think it seems sometimes easier to say like, you know, pretend you're the CTO of this business. How would you build it? Mm. Uh, and again, there's other ways of, of solving that. But, you know, systems design, I think, is relevant for all levels of, of engineer. You know, ideally, a junior engineer is also a systems designer, potentially at a slightly smaller scale with a little mm. bit less experience. Um, but hopefully it shouldn't be completely theoretical and abstract. It should have purpose. Mm. I think w when I've looked at more junior engineers and even graduates, um, I I've always looked that they can intuit what the good what a good design might look like, even if they don't have the real world experience to back it up, uh, yeah. rather than just attack it with the technology that they learned in university. It's like, that's my sequel work there. It's like, what? <laughs> that isn't appropriate. I don't know what it is. I think we solved it with Spark. <laughs> yeah, it's probably nowadays. It's like Spark, Spark solves everything. Yeah. Um, okay, good, good, good. I suppose we'll um, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up with uh, this is a question I'm thinking about asking everyone, but this is one of the first podcasts that we're doing. Um, if you could, if you could go back twenty years to to when you were still on the west coast and uh, give yourself some advice, knowing everything that you know now, what what would you tell yourself? Um, I'd be stupid not to say buy Bitcoin and then sell it <laughs> in 2018. Uh, you know, I think it's it's hard to predict everything. I think you know what I would say is um, the journey has its ups and downs, but find interesting problems and interesting people to work with, and uh, it'll keep you intellectually intellectually stimulated. Mm. And, and buy, probably buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kicking myself. Um, yeah, I think uh, working on interesting problems and interesting uh, with interesting people has, has certainly helped my career, but also kept me sane as well, which is uh, you know very 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 useful and, uh, and 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 meaningful as well. I've worked with some really meaningful places and with some really really meaningful people, including yourself. So yeah, um, I, I suppose we could we could wrap it up there. This is one of the first ones we're doing. Unless you wanted to add anything about yourself that people should know about. Oh, I think people know way too much about me at this point already. Uh, no, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Richard. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Aaron. <laughs>